everyone. Welcome to Better Together and As We Podcast. For future reference, ASWE stands for the Alzheimer's Society of Windsor and Essex County. This podcast will feature engaging conversations with guests ranging from community leaders to care partners and persons living with dementia to raise awareness about this disease. You're listening to Better Together and As We Podcast, and this is our uh, 14th episode my name is Cindy Keel, and I'm joined today by Dr. Jenny Wells. Uh, Jenny Wells is not uh, new to this podcast. We did a podcast um, about four or five months ago, and it was about the importance of an early diagnosis. If you want to check it out, it's on our YouTube channel, and it's episode seven. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. Jenny Wells, for being here with me today. Thanks for inviting me, Cindy. It's my pleasure. <clears throat> so I would love for us to get into... Um, how you became involved with the Alzheimer's Society um, and what you're doing right now. Um, so I'm an academic physician with uh, the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at Western University. Um, some of the people in Windsor know me because I recently retired from my role as geriatric medicine consultant at the Hotel Du Geriatric Assessment Program there. My biggest clinical interest as a geriatrician is dementia. And um, it's in the Canadian consensus guidelines for primary care that if someone has memory complaints or if they're diagnosed with dementia to refer to the Alzheimer's Society. So it's part of the clinical care plan. Um, here in London, Middlesex, I've been, I recently, they had a, a first uh, link community engagement committee that I was a member of. Um, that committee has just recently in the past year folded, um, served its purpose, but uh, they're an important um, community partner for the care of my patients. And it's so, basically, a pre it's, it's a prescription that I write for my patients for education and support. So how long were you at the Hotel Du here in Windsor? Oh, goodness. Um, I started that right away, uh, January of 1997. It wasn't with Hotel Du, it was with the other hospital. <laughs> was it Met, Met Hospital? It was at Met. Um, of course, then the, the city divided into it. So I would do citywide consults. I would go to the Willette campus and Met, but it was based at, uh, what do they call it? Western campus of Metropolitan, is the old name for that yes, building? Yes, that's yeah. the old name for sure. Yeah, and so then, uh, you know, things transform and change. Mm -hmm. But in 1997, and I would do uh, two uh, two full days twice a month. So I was driving to Windsor a lot back then. And then gradually, as other geriatricians were recruited, mm -hmm. then I had it down to two full days once a month. And then there was more geriatricians recruited to a hotel due. Um, so I've kind of went down to just two full days of clinic uh, about eight times a year. And then I decided enough, it's enough. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hard commute. It's a lot of driving. And especially that drive is just a straight shot drive. There's uh, nothing interesting. It's just, yeah. it's, it's not a fun drive. Um, I miss, I miss coming to Windsor. When was the last time you came? Oh, well, it was just, it was during the pandemic. I think there was closed for a while. It would have been, 
I did some of my Windsor Clinic virtually during the middle part of 2020. So maybe it was November of 2020. Okay, oh, so right, like around the pandemic when it started? Yeah, yeah. So would you say the profession of a geriatrician, has it, has more people, um, you know, um, became interested in this um, profession since you started or are you seeing, you know, a decline? Well, and we, there is still a significant shortage of geriatricians in all of North America. Um, I can just speak locally there has been more interest in terms of medical students wanting to do electives with us. Mm -hmm. And we had applicants to our specialty training program, more and more applicants growing over the past 12 years so that we've always filled our positions that the Ministry of Health offers us for uh, specialty training. So I'm optimistic that we will be gaining more. We have, our division has grown slowly, but we still don't have enough for the demographic of the population because all the baby boomers are, are aging. Mm -hmm. So I was the fifth geriatrician hired and now we have a division of 12. So since 1997, and now we have 12, but it, we're still short. Yeah, that sounds like it's very short. Yeah. So why do you think um, the interest has increased within the last, I would say 10 years? I think people have awareness of as we age, if we don't die of something, we collect more and more medical problems, whether it's dementia, mm -hmm. whether it's heart disease, diabetes, arthritis with disability, strokes, and we have me good medical treatments that keep us living longer and longer with these diseases. So I think it's awareness in the medical schools and the public that we need specialists who can deal with complexity and in a holistic, individualized way to address each person's complex circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, geriatrics uh, basically is a very holistic specialty that looks at uh, the person's, well, the personhood of a per, per, the, per, the person and their values, their core beliefs, and integrates that with evidence-based care and function. And it's not necessarily having someone live longer and longer, it's having what time we have left to live with as much capacity and independence is sort of the principles of geriatric medicine. Mm -hmm. And then within my academic specialty, I've become more, because become narrow and narrower and narrower in terms of being an expert. And so I've, instead of general geriatrics, I focused in more on the dementia aspect of it as dementia is often associated with aging. Mm -hmm. So in our previous episode, uh, we talked about the importance of an early diagnosis. Why is an early diagnosis important? So um, in general, in terms of an early diagnosis for dementia, it allows the person and their family, because dementia is a disease that affects the whole family and affects a person's social interactions with others and their ability to engage in the community. It'll, an early diagnosis can help educate and have a person plan for the future. It also will allow a time uh, to have lifestyle changes that might slow progression. And that's particularly the case with Alzheimer's disease. So exercise, cognitive exercise, being engaged in community supports, 
is really key to reduce dependency, such as transferring to nursing home and other, other things that can prevent other disabilities. So it's a checkpoint to get evaluated because then there can be referrals for what we call vascular risk management. Preventing strokes and heart attacks. A person who has a stroke increases their risk of Alzheimer's disease, for example. So that a, a treatment for general health is blood pressure management, prevention of diabetes or treating diabetes, cholesterol management, making sure your exercise is all treated and that goes hand in hand with dementia pre prevention. There are some genetic forms that um, make it more challenging. We can't prevent, we can, in terms of Alzheimer's disease, we can sometimes prevent if it's a late onset familial, um, but it's more in, more in line is delaying the onset of Alzheimer's disease. So instead of getting Alzheimer's disease at 75 for late onset, you might get it at 80. But all of that extra time is time with more enhanced function. Next is frontal temporal dementia. Um, there's not as much evidence published in terms of symptom management or delay of progression with exercise and diet with frontal temporal dementia. The only thing I can say in terms of that is that general health is important. So if you have frontal temporal dementia and, and you're also having strokes, you're gonna be a lot worse than not. What so, exactly is the frontal temporal dementia? Yeah, so frontal temporal dementia is, and I will just acknowledge that I have more experience with Alzheimer's dementia and managing it clinically because I'm a physician for seniors. Frontal temporal dementia, is a neurodegenerative condition of the brain that is actually quite heterogeneous. And if we look at um, the pre prevalence, if you take people over the age of 65, 80% of all dementia that a person persons may get is gonna be due to vascular of different types of strokes, small strokes, big strokes, and or combined with Alzheimer's disease. Then there's 20% of others. Five or five to six percent is considered frontal temporal dementia um, overall, and eight to twelve percent could be something called Lewy body dementia. So frontal temporal dementia is relatively rare, and it's not a single entity. The most common type of frontal temporal dementia is what we call behavior variant. There are two other types of frontal temporal dementia, and the word frontal temporal refers to what lobes of the brain are affected with the um, neuron or brain cell death and the type of we call pathology or disease process that occurs there. Um, so the behavior variant has features that in early stages can look like depression or it might look like, oh, this person is having a midlife crisis. They're doing very unusual things. They're talking off their head and, and perhaps being rude or insensitive or spending splurging on money. And you can they can defend that and say, well, I'm 55 years old. I've worked for 25 years. I deserve this and that and the other thing. So you can tell yourself a story that is, is rational and, and it makes sense at the time, or they become very apathetic in terms of their behavior. And 
they might be, oh, this looks like a depression, a midlife crisis with a depression. Well, we'll give an antidepressant. And indeed, the type of uh, brain chemical that is reduced in the frontal lobes with behavior variant is serotonin. So by Im Im giving more serotonin through a medication called trazodone, mm -hmm. which has evidence in behavior variant frontal temporal dementia, uh, or the same neurotransmitter called serotonin can be increased through other antidepressants like citalopram, for example, their behavior improves uh, to a degree. But then as time goes on, this behavior variant, the behaviors become um, more challenging. One of the things that families uh, find challenging is a person with behavior variant frontal temporal dementia doesn't recognize the facial expressions of others as well. And so they seem insensitive to their family members' emotions. And then the family members are very hurt or frustrated and say, they don't care about me. Um, and there's other, other behaviors as well that I can go into in, in more detail. Um, so that's part of it. And so there's some patients that I've been referred uh, in their 50s with frontal temporal dementia. And I get the story that they were seen by their family doctor and a psychiatrist and given an antidepressant. And that sort of stabilized things sort of for a couple of years. And then, then I see them five or six years later. And at that time, there's more egregious behaviors, not a lot of social uh, niceties with this disease mm -hmm. at times. Now, I've spent a lot of time on the behavior variant there's um, two other types that involve language use. And uh, one is called non-fluent aphasia. And the people will have word finding troubles and they will begin to shorten sentences. And they, they might know exactly what they wanna say as, and then the other language variant is the people are fluent, they speak, with complete fluency, nouns, verbs, object of the verb, but they're often in the early stages off topic. So I will teach my medical students and residents if you ask a person a question and you listen to them talk and they are talking in the periphery or they never answer it, you would have semantic dementia on your list. So the word semantic is word meaning. And this, when the early, when it's in an early stage, it's very hard to recognize because the fluency of their speech is normal, as is what we call the prosody of speech, the intonation and the up and down and reflection of emotions. So it's the listening carefully, do they, and then it's really a word uh, that what isn't deemed that sophisticated, mm -hmm. like you have to always assess uh, and with any dementia, what if is English or whatever, what is their first language? What are they most fluent in? If it's a second language, then that is a conundrum for uh, to assess if there's language deteriorating, especially if you're not fluent in their first language um, and their education level. Um, I had a, another gentleman in uh, with semantic dementia. It took me a while to get to the diagnosis. Um, he um, left school at a fairly young age because his family uh, had financial needs. And his 
job was um, not too sophisticated, um, disassembling parts from uh, old refrigerators and to recycle the metal. That was his career. And didn't have a lot of education, but he grew up in a rural part next to a lot of farmers and had farms. So I was doing what we call verbal fluency tests. And I had seen him once before and we did, we call animal verbal fluency. So the, the, the test is one minute long. Please say the names of as many animals as you can think of in a minute. And I thought this, this man also had um, heart disease. I thought he had some vascular changes in his brain because I looked at his imaging and that was true. And when I, so the second time I saw him, I said, okay, Mr. Jones, not his real name, mm -hmm. please say the names of as many animals as you can think of in a minute. And he did this very easily six months before. This time he sat there silent. And so I said again, it, so the names of as many animals as you can think of. And I, then I gave a little prompt like pets or forest animal, animal. And so I said animals. Then there's a pause and it dawned on me, oh, Mr. Jones, do you know what the word animal means? And he said, no. And so it can be very much a challenge for people with semantic dementia. As both of these language variants progress, they may also have some behavior changes. Some of the uh, issues with the, front, the frontal lobes don't have, um, well, there's a little bit of language connectivity in the frontal lobes, particularly on, that, on the dominant side. Sorry, I'm part of, part of, pointing to the lobes of my brain. <laughs> um, but the frontal lobes, unlike some of the other lobes, which will control arm muscle movement and that sort of thing, is insight, judgment, reasoning, uh, understanding emotions, abstraction, the understanding metaphors, for example, mm -hmm. and it, it, personality motivation. So those sort of warm, fuzzy topics are all programmed in our frontal lobe. So we look for personality changes. And as the two language variants progress, the first symptoms would be language. And I've had patients with, with semantic dementia who the relatives come in and say, they're forgetting what things are. And then that can be a word finding problem. So people with Alzheimer's disease have language troubles and they will have word finding problems. They'll also say the thingamajig, mm. pass me the, the thing, right? Um, and there's with Alzheimer's disease, some people have more language deficits than others. So we have to consider, I use imaging, I use, there's special testing to help sort that out in the early stages. Um, as the two language variants progress, they will also have uh, some uh, behavior challenges. And you're already aware, I'm working with the Alzheimer's side and seeing Alzheimer's patients that agitation uh, can be a feature and that can take a lot of different flavors and types, but, but that is often agitation is one of the hallmarks um, along with disinhibition for the frontal temporal spectrum disorders. Um, and then there's both the, as I mentioned earlier, the serotonergic, that's that uh, neurotransmitter serotonin that's increased by antidepressants. And I mentioned one is, uh, I don't have stock in any pharmaceutical companies, so I'm using generic names. Citalopram would be an example that's uh, of a serotonergic antidepressant that's well tolerated, as well as trazodone has the, the trial base to reduce agitation in people with frontal temporal dementia. Um, later on frontal temporal dementia, they will be, have more, and even the behavior variant, their language will change. So some of the language tests that I'll do, I mentioned the animal verbal fluency. 
There's also say as many words that start with a letter F or S or B. And um, for my patients with frontal temporal dementia, if they have behavior variant, they'll be more disinhibited. And if I use the F, if say as many words that start with F, they'll start with the F word. Mm -hmm which is actually very commonplace in our society today. But when I first started, it was the F word was bad and no one ever said it. And so that would be disinhibited to say blurt that word out in a physician's office. So that would be a little clue if they chose that as their first word. Um, but though that idea of saying as many words that start with the letter B or F or S is a more abstract and it's more of a frontal lobe task. When there's been research done while, while the people are actually doing these language tests to look at the area of the brain that lights up more. So although the language is engaged for saying animals in a minute or fruits and vegetables, it's also a visual spatial task. So the non-dominant parietal lobe will light up because that's the area of the brain that's very visual spatial and thinks in categories. So that um, the person with frontal temporal dementia will have let's say, for example, four F words in a minute and maybe near normal 14 animals in a minute. So when I see that disparity of performance and I have to weigh in their education level and you know onset and progression, then that points to a frontal lobe syndrome. Um, now, the other uh, type of uh, frontal temporal dementia is in persons who have uh, Parkinson plus syndromes. And so those are progressive supranuclear palsy and cortical basal degeneration. So those are, um, well, progressive supranuclear palsy is the second most common uh, movement disorder after Parkinson's disease. So um, I think most family doctors might see one in, in a career. I, uh, for a while, for about 10 years in a row, I've seen one per year, but it's not as common as Parkinson's disease. But these people um, would have a variety of symptoms with stiffness and shuffling and movement that would get the attention of their doctors and the attention of themselves and the family first. Mm -hmm. But they would also have, we call it, the term for frontal lobe uh, is dysfunction, is dis-executive syndrome. So executive function is the thinking, reasoning, judgment, planning. So it's sort of an imagining a future and knowing what steps you have to do in what order to accomplish goals. So that's one of the classic roles of the frontal lobes of our brain is to plan and have insight and sequencing. So some of those um, might, well, they will deteriorate across the board with anyone with these frontal temporal dementia variants. I'm happy you're, you're pointing to your head and showing the <laughs> frontal lobe. Yeah, the example, because a lot of people don't realize, you know, how many different types yeah. of dementia there is and, and how it all correlates with one another. So language, left, left temporal lobe, non-dominant parietal lobe here. Wow. Because I'm learning, I'm literally learning so much <laughs> from you right now. So Park, I, I just want to um, clarify, Parkinson's is a type of dementia. Or when Par Parkinson's disease, idiopathic Parkinson's disease is a separate neurodegenerative disease. Um, people with Parkinson's disease, uh, not all of them develop a dementia. Mm -hmm. There is a certain criteria that we use to say that a person will have a Parkinson's dementia. However, because Alzheimer's disease is so common, as are strokes, 
it's quite often that a person who's older with Parkinson's disease may have cognitive impairment because of Alzheimer's disease, common things are common, and or little strokes. And there is, um, the treatment will be the same in terms of Alzheimer's disease. People with Parkinson's disease who develop Parkinson's dementia also improve with the cholinesterase inhibitors, which are on the market for Alzheimer's disease. And that's also true with Lewy body dementia. But Parkinson's dementia is separate in terms of what are the brain chemicals and what causes the cell death in the brain. So it's different pathology. Pathology is the word that means the disease process on a microscopic and cellular level. Mm -hmm. So it's Parkinson's dementia is different than Alzheimer's disease, but it can respond to the same medications. Um, people with both Lewy body, because that's similar to Parkinson's disease, um, will have more visual spatial impairment than a, than a typically similarly impaired Alzheimer's patient. That's depth perception. It was ability to draw the clock and put the numbers on right and that sort of thing. Um, so Parkinson's disease doesn't necessarily imply dementia. Mm -hmm. However, for a person who gets Parkinson's disease after the age of 65, there's usually, by having Parkinson's disease after 65 for at least seven to ten, eight years, there's going to be some cognitive impairment. Cognitive impairment with Parkinson's disease is more common in the older patient with Parkinson's disease. If you get Parkinson's disease as a young person in your 30s or 40s, uh, it's less associated with cognitive de Parkinson's dementia. Ask me why? I don't know. Mm -hmm. We see this. So I think par so there's Parkinsonism. So Parkinsonism is, it looks like Parkinson's disease, but it's not. So Parkinsonism can be caused by strokes in the certain area of the brain. Parkinsonism, you can call that because people with these two frontal temporal dementia syndromes, cortical basal degeneration and progressive supranuclear palsy look like they have Parkinson's disease, but they don't. Mm. So, so um, first, this is um, this might be like an off-topic question, but if um, somebody who plays a specific sport like boxing or you know MMA or something like that can, are they more prone to have um, you know um, one of these types of dementias because their 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 head is getting hit a lot more, or is does that correlate? Because I I'm, I'm thinking about um, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali. Yes. Yeah. Um, there is something, it's sort of an older term, and I don't hear it recently, um, and I think that was some of the hypothesis, but only, doc, uh, only Muhammad Ali's physicians and neurologists would know, mm -hmm. but there's, we call it pugilistic Parkinsonism, and that's from re repeated pummeling of the head. Soccer players who head the ball a lot have been May, might have been had that. Um, it was hypothesized, oh, that's why Muhammad Ali has his Parkinson's. But if, in fact, Parkinson's disease is common. He probably has idiopathic Parkinson's disease, but I don't know his exact health history. Mm -hmm. um, so there is something with repeated bouts of the head and, and progressive rep repetitive brain injury that can cause uh, Parkinsonism syndrome. And head injuries are associated with dementia particularly Alzheimer's disease. I, I don't know of any association of 
repeated concussions or head injuries causing uh, frontal temporal dementia in terms of a neurodegeneration. If you have a brain injury that is a stroke in the frontal lobes, you will mimic and have some symptoms similar to people with frontal temporal dementia, which is neurodegenerative, but it won't necessarily progress if you have a frontal lobe stroke. You will have personality changes. You might not be able to plan things as well. And it depends on the location. And if you have two frontal lobe strokes, that creates a lot of impairment. So frontal temporal dementia or their family, how can they prepare for a doctor's visit? Like, are there specific things that they should keep in mind or do? Um, well, I guess the access to health is through the primary care doctor themselves. And so you would go to your family doctor. Well, the, often the person who has frontal temporal dementia, some may have insight, I'm different, I'm not right. And that will be a very vague complaint. So that's a little bit hard for a family doctor to sort out. You're different, you're not quite right. Well, do you have a fever? Are you short of breath? So, so it's, you know, and then they might zero in, oh, are you depressed, right? So it's you keeping a diary or family members keeping a diary. And people with frontal temporal dementia, they can often lack insight. And they'll say, there's nothing wrong with me. You're the one with the problem. So there can be lots of family arguments because of the change in personality, but the person with the disease doesn't have insight. So, and they don't recognize the frustration of the other family members. I would encourage family members to write down a diary. You know, this is my husband's or my wife's personality baseline. This And this is what's been happening now. It takes um, considerable time. Mm -hmm. And it's helpful if the family doctor are part of a health team that might have a social worker to assist with some of the other history taking because it's a detailed history. I really like the idea of uh, keeping a diary because oftentimes family members and care partners are so, you know, um, trying to be in tune with what's going on in their, in, with their personal life and all that. They forget, you know, um, certain examples or situations that um, are important to explain to the doctor, right? So mm -hmm. writing down everything is, is, is a great idea. Some of the other features would be a and particularly in behavior variant is becoming more obsessive compulsive in routines. Door checking, you have to have this, you have to have that food. The food on my plate has to be arranged in this order. So you mentioned earlier, um, you know, keeping your brain active and, and healthy is a very um, important part of, you know, um, off, not offsetting, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, prolonging, you know, a diagnosis or, or, or the disease. Um, what are some of brain exercises that you can suggest for our listeners to maybe do or think of? Um, well, one of the things I'm capable or cautious with is I have to respect someone's likes and dislikes. So in terms of brain exercise um, for people with frontal temporal dementia, um, I haven't read the literature about particular things. Um, I think in terms of people with any sort of dementia benefit from going to a day program mm -hmm. where there's social engagement, supervision, facilitation, because if they have trouble sequencing things, they won't be able to engage in some of their old hobbies. What do I do next? What do I do next? So um, I do, I'm a strong advocate for day programs. Uh, in terms of, in general, I'm talking more for an Alzheimer's type dementia, 
is learning and doing new things. And it would depend on your personality, your likes and dislikes. So I kind of make a joke uh, in terms of exercise. If you told me to go swimming, I'd say go jump in the lake. I probably used that joke in the last podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Did I? Um, but there are studies with like Mahjong. And, but the evidence in terms of doing computer games is you might get better at your word searches and so forth, but we don't, there's not enough evidence that some of those computerized games or crossword puzzles translates into function in everyday life. So we would encourage people to, if they're churchgoers, they go to church and they socialize. Or they would do, do the housework. Oh, you're gonna learn how to do something new? Oh, there's a new recipe, mm -hmm. right? Or, or, oh, I've learned a new craft. Depends on the person's level and abilities that they would take an interest. Um, artwork and painting. Um, going to a class, learning a new language would be examples but it has to be targeted um, at the right intellectual and functional ability so it doesn't become frustrating. Um, may, there's been a study with Pac-Man. 15 minutes a day of Pac-Man improves performance on pen and paper cognitive tests. Meijan will improve performance on pen and paper tests. But again, do the pen and paper tests correlate to everyday life? Not necessarily. Then I will show scans and um, maybe even pictures of their MRI scan with shrinkage of certain areas and show them a normal scan and shrinkage. But shrinkage is, is a late finding. So sometimes in the early stages of any dementia, the scan looks normal. Yeah. And then I'll get other scans like a spec scan that shows decreased blood flow to certain areas of the brain that helps confirm the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Just from listening to you talk, I, I find that you all you, you asked the right questions, um, which is really cool to, to listen to. Um, <laughs> the name of our podcast is Better Together. Uh, from your perspective, what does that mean to you? It's better Together. Well, yes. Um, so that would be the topic of this whole last two years with COVID and the social isolation that it's caused. I've had so many of my patients with having to stay at home and their day programs are closed and they can't get out and do their usual hobbies and things that they have more agitation and depression, whether it's the caregivers or the patients themselves. So we are, as human beings, we're social creatures. We are better together. And even people who are call themselves loners, mm -hmm. every human being needs some degree of social contact. Um, people who are isolated develop psychosis, which could mean suspiciousness, paranoia. They're more confused. Um, they get more depressed. Um, and that's why, well, it's not been in the news in the last six months. It's only been dominated by COVID. But I remember listening to CBC News regarding changes in our penal system to call solitary confinement a cruel and unusual punishment. Um, so better together, we are definitely better together. And, and I ask that to everyone for just resiliency factors, because um, boy, if, if you have a neighbor or a church family person who can bring you chicken soup when you're homesick, you're better than the person who doesn't have any friends who will bring them chicken soup, mm -hmm. right? So there's so many concrete examples of why as human beings we're better if we 
have associations with other people and other groups and what we call, I call community connectedness. It's a resiliency factor to get us over the hard times that life throws at us. Thank you so much, Dr. Jenny Wells. Um, so I would love for us to finish this podcast with some fire rapid questions. Uh, these are gonna be the same five questions I asked you in the previous uh, podcast, but I wanted to see if you're gonna um, answer them differently this time, okay? Oh. So there's no wrong answer. And if you could just answer them with one word or one sentence, are, are you ready? Oh, sure. All right. I'm, if, I'm afraid, but I'm ready. <laughs> if you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with your extra time? Bicycle. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, okay. I want to say ice cream, but my, the first word that popped in my mind was avocados. Yum. What would your perfect Sunday look like? Bicycling. What could you give a 40-minute presentation on with absolutely no preparation? Dementia. What's the best piece of advice someone has ever given you? Take care of yourself. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Jenny Wells. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. I hope our listeners have gained a better, more clear understanding um, about the frontal temporal dementia and other um, Alzheimer's disease as well. So, hey, listeners, my call to action for all of you, how can you help? Educate yourself and encourage others to do the same. Refer your circle of friends and family to our services. Support our events and fundraising campaigns and become a dementia-friendly community. Keep talking about dementia. Listen to new episodes on the last Friday of every month on our YouTube channel, Alzheimer Windsor. Don't forget to subscribe. Help for today, hope for tomorrow, and remember we are better together. Thank you so much, Dr. Jenny Wells.